You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, good morning. Like Kari said, my name's Doug. I serve on staff as one of our pastors, and I'm excited to get to spend a few minutes together with you this morning. We hope you've had a great spring break with your family. If you're still on spring break and you're watching with us online, thank you for tuning in that way. Uh, We know that Tim and his family were able to get away for a few days, and we did not want him to have to worry about a sermon while he was away with them. We just wanted him to focus on being with them and sort of enjoying that moment. So that means we're going to get to spend this time together this morning. But don't worry, he's going to be back next week, okay? So Last week, like Kari said, we started a series called Force to Slow Down. And in that first sermon, Tim asked us one really important question. He simply asked, what's it look like to welcome Jesus into our life? His entire sermon was just about that one question. What's it look like just to slow down and to welcome Jesus into our life? Well, this week, I'm gonna continue that series and I'm gonna look at one of the most common experiences that happens in all of our lives that slows all of us down. That experience is called pain. And I wanna ask you one question. By the end of the day, I hope you can kind of reflect on and answer this question. What does it look like when we welcome Jesus into our pain? What's it look like when we welcome Jesus into our pain? And as we think through pain, I think it would be helpful if we just pause and I give us somewhat of like a common grid or framework to think through pain with, okay? So I'm gonna tell you three truths that I know are right about pain. The first is this, pain is universal. It does not matter where you live, when you lived, if you're a man, a woman, your race, your socioeconomic status, none of that matters. Pain is universal. How do I know that's true? Because if I look very, very tan right now, it's because I just spent eight days in Belize on a mission trip with 15 of the most amazing college students I've ever met. And then two awesome leaders, one's a staff member named Hunter Hughes and his wife, Taylor. And my wife and I had the joy of serving in a community in Belize in the mountains where it was not snowing like it is this morning. As a matter of fact, it was 104 degrees in the shade, okay? so. Um, I took a picture of the snow and sent it to the missionary and said, Sunday at my church, okay? Uh, Because I gotta tell you, I preached last Sunday at their church. There's no AC and they made me wear pants and it was awful, all right? Um, But when I talked about pain in Belize, they felt the same way we do. Why? Because pain is universal. We all know it, we all experience, we all have been impacted by it. Here's the other thing, even though it's universal, it's also unique. Uh, When my wife and I were having our first child, uh, he wasn't kind of coming along. So we had to do an, a scheduled delivery and induction. And uh, that gave us the opportunity to be a little prepared. I'll never forget, they put these sensors on her and they told me, they gave me a monitor and they said, on this monitor, there's a line. And when the line goes up, she's getting ready to have a contraction. And when it goes down, her contraction is gonna start to end. And lo and behold, just a few minutes later, I see the line go up and she goes, ah! right? And then I go, just wait, wait, boom, the line comes down and it goes away. And then the line goes up, ah, and then the line goes down. We do that five or six times. Then all of a sudden she grabbed my hands and goes, ah, and I looked and I said, oh, honey, you're not having a contraction. There's no line. And uh, she looked at me and said, don't tell me what's happening with my body. Okay. Uh, Here's the truth. Just because I couldn't see it didn't mean it wasn't happening. Pain might be universal, but it's also unique. 
And if you're sitting in the room right now, you may be suffering with a pain that no one knows. You may not even know how to put into words. It's maybe not necessarily a physical pain. You might be in an emotional pain or a relational pain, but you're suffering with a very unique pain that is all your own. So we know pain is universal. We know it's unique, but we also know that pain, it's unavoidable. Why? Because pain's just an unfortunate byproduct of living in a messy world as a messy person and sometimes suffering messy results. The Bible attributes pain to a word. That word is called sin. Sin is simply when we do what we wanna do instead of what God wants us to do. And sin comes with a whole lot of consequences in it. But one of the worst consequences is pain. You know, when I think about pain in my life, I can tell you the three most common reasons I experience pain, okay? The first is because I did something that created chaos in my life. I did something that created chaos in my life. The second is you did something that created chaos in my life. Someone I love, someone I trusted, made a decision, took an action in their life that then impacted my life. Uh, To say it the way you've heard Tim say it, that their irresponsibility became my responsibility, right? So I've made a decision that created chaos or you've made a decision that created chaos for me. And the third time, the third reason is maybe just something completely out of the blue occurred that no one's responsible for, but it created chaos. When I talk to our students, sometimes I'll say it this way, Sometimes in my life, it's my bad. My bad, that was me, I did that, I owned that, that was on me. Sometimes it's your bad, and sometimes it's just bad. But this is just an unavoidable consequence of living in a messy and messed up world. Sometimes it's my bad, sometimes it's your bad, and sometimes it's just bad. But here's some good news. While pain is never pleasant, it's not totally bad. A good friend of mine is a surgeon. And one day he told me a statement that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, you know, Doug, pain has a way of keeping you honest. Pain has a way of keeping you honest. Pain warns you that something is actually wrong and that you need to be careful not to make it worse. Pain warns you that you need to take some actions to avoid further injury in your life. And man, those words have rung true since I heard them, that pain has a way of keeping me honest. Here's another thing pain has a way of doing. Pain has a way of causing me to search for solutions in my life. Pain has a way of causing me to search for solutions. Those solutions really have two goals. I want to either erase the pain or ease the pain I'm facing. I wanna erase the pain or I wanna ease the pain. Now, I just told you I was in Belize and we built a house. And let me tell you, they do not have the certain equipment and tools we had. So the first thing we had to do is lay a concrete slab, a foundation for this home. They do not have concrete plants. You mix it by hand. They do not have dump trucks. You move it all onto the slab with wheelbarrows. Needless to say, at the end of the day, we were not just sunburned, we were burnt. We were done, we were sore. And if you live in America and you are sort of sore and fatigued, what do you do? You take some Aleve, you take some Advil, You get some icy hot and you rub it on. But when you're in Belize, that's not what you do. One of our missionaries said, you know what you need to do? And I said, what? He goes, go to the store. You need to buy something called Mayan Secret. Mayan Secret. I said, I don't know. I don't know. That's maybe a secret I don't want told to me, okay? But uh, here it is. This is Mayan Secret, okay? The reason I brought it is because this is apparently the best thing ever made. Here's why. Uh, It says, relieves minor muscle pain and arthritis as well as 
cough and cold symptoms, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you rub this on or you eat it, but if you're pregnant, you don't need to touch it, okay? It's like, listen, pain has a way of forcing us to search for solutions. And you'll look at the weirdest things for all kinds of reasons, right? Well, listen, I, I wanna argue that pain might be the good thing God used to bring you to the best thing in your life. Here's why. For many of us, it was the pain we were experiencing that caused us to start searching that led us to Jesus. It looks maybe something like this. Pain leads to searching. Searching leads you to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just ease your pain. He gives you hope for life. Pain leads us to search. Search leads us to Jesus. And Jesus leads us to hope. Look, regardless of how the pain got into your life, my bad, you're bad, it's just bad. When we invite Jesus into our pain, our pain can move from being pointless to having a purpose. Let me say it a different way. In the hands of God, pain isn't a pointless part of life. In the hands of God, pain isn't a pointless part of life because pain is an important tool the hands of God uses to change our lives. Because pain is an important tool the hand of God uses to change our lives. Look, if you were made of stone and God was going to carve a statue out of you, he would have to take a hammer and a chisel. And if you had feeling, it wouldn't hurt. But to have the beautiful end result of what a master craftsman can create, you have to go through the chiseling. In the hands of God, pain is like a hammer and a chisel. It's a tool that he wields in such a way that he brings us to a point. He brings something out of us that we never thought could be possible. But it's only when it's in his hands and not in someone else's. So in today's passage, we're gonna actually look at two people who are experiencing a great pain in their life. Two people that by the end of today, you might go, I think, I think those are my people in the Bible. I think that story is my story. I mean, I know it was thousands of years ago. I know maybe I relate more to the man than the woman, or maybe I relate in this situation, but here's the thing, that's how I feel right now. So we're gonna look at two people whose pain intersects at the exact same moment with Jesus in Mark chapter five, Mark chapter five. We're gonna be in verses 21 through 43. I'm gonna read it to you. If you have a Bible, you are welcome to open it or turn it on. Mark chapter five, verses 21 through 43. Let's just read the first few verses together. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. And then he came to one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at a point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. Okay, so let me give you some context of what's happening. Jesus has been doing ministry in this town. He's known in this town. He's done some miracles in this town. And the crowd started to swell and Jesus took his disciples, they got on a boat and they went to the other side of the sea. He did some miracles over there. Now he's headed back to where he came from. When they hear he's on the way back, a crowd gathers together at the city dock. And at the city dock, when Jesus gets off, there's one particular man who catches Jesus's attention. And he's gonna become the first character we're gonna look at. We're gonna call him a desperate dad. He's a desperate dad. His name is actually Jairus and we know quite a bit about him. We know he's a respected leader in his community. 
He's probably a businessman who's pretty affluent in the area. We know that he helps lead in their local synagogue. He organizes worship services basically and helps people with finding a seed or taking up the offering or whatever it might be that he's tasked to do in his local community. So he has a good reputation, okay? But here's the problem. He's got a big problem and he's out of options. He's heard about the power of Jesus. It is actually likely he may have seen some of the miracles Jesus has done. He most certainly has seen people Jesus has healed come into the temple to show themselves to a priest. And in this moment, he doesn't know what to do. So in desperation, he goes publicly and he reaches out to Jesus because he doesn't care about the cost. And why? Because if our first character is a desperate dad, the second character is a dying daughter. Now, we don't know this little girl's name. We don't know her name. We don't know what she's sick with. And we also don't know how long she's been sick. All we know is that she's 12 years old and that her father loves her. If you could let me use a little bit of my imagination, I have to believe that her father has loved her since he heard her first cry and someone shouted, it's a girl. He's loved her since he held her for the first time wrapped up in a blanket. He's loved her since he changed her first diaper or helped give her her first bath. He loved her since he watched her take her first steps or heard her say, dad, or I love you for the first time. He's loved her since he kissed her first boo-boo and he dried his tears with his robe as he held his crying daughter. He's loved her since he helped her pull her first loose tooth. He's loved her since the first time he heard her laugh and he saw his wife reflected in his daughter. He loved her on her first birthday, her fifth birthday, and her 12th birthday before she became a teenager. This little girl, she's his world, and he would do anything to see her healed. And I think if we just pause right here, we can see one big moment that even right now, if you feel desperate, you're like, that's how I feel, I'm totally desperate. It's not even the pain I'm feeling. I'm feeling pain on behalf of somebody I love. You relate to Jairus, you relate to this moment. Let me give you a big point, right? That even though this dad was desperate and his daughter was dying, we're reminded when we invite Jesus into our pain, Jesus offers us hope when we're hopeless. When Jesus engages in the story, we can suddenly have hope when we feel hopeless. So you have this crowd that's on the dock and Jesus gets off the boat and Jairus grabs him by the sleeve and he says, come Jesus, Jesus, I need you to come see my daughter. He goes, okay, Jairus, let's go. And they start moving through the city. And as they move through the city, there's more and more people who begin to crowd around them. And I have to think that Jesus is sort of moving this way with his disciples and Jairus has his sleeve and he's pulling them along. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. It says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all she had and she was no better, but actually she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
So if we've met a desperate dad and a dying daughter, we meet our third character, a woman who's done. She's done. Look, if Jairus is a respected person in the community, this woman is a rejected person in the community. She has an issue with blood. We don't know exactly what it is. I tend to think she was probably some form of hemophilia where she can't stop a cut. She can't stop bleeding. And it must have been in some way that was visible because it was a known condition that she had. She had had it for 12 years. So at the same time, the Jairus life was sort of increasing in joy. Hers was devolving. Do you get what's happening? He's growing with his daughter and her life is losing everything. This issue of blood, which makes her unclean in her community, it has cost her her money. She would not have been able to have a job. She would not have been able to attend at what we'd call church services. Her friends to have been with her would have become unclean themselves. So she lost her friendships. Most likely she lost her family and she certainly has lost her dignity, even to be in this crowd, which was shoulder to shoulder, pressing in on each other, anyone she touched then became unclean themselves. She was somebody that the community didn't want, that there was no place for. Look, um, she is done. That's just the way to think of it. She's done. She's got no moves left. She's out of options. But she has one thing left that's very important. It's her faith, even if her faith is a little bit flawed. See, this lady thought she actually needed to touch Jesus, but that's not necessarily true because if that were true, then you and I would have to touch him. But she in her mind thought I needed to touch Jesus. So think of the scene. Jairus has Jesus by this arm and he's moving him through the crowd. And he's saying, Jesus, just a little bit further. There's my house, there's my house. See the window, that's where my daughter is in that window. And they're moving and they're moving and they're moving. And they're all getting crushed together. And as Jesus is being pulled this way, he feels something tugged this way. And Jesus stops and the whole crowd just sort of stops behind him and beside him and in front of him and around him. And Jesus says, who touched me? And actually in the other gospels, it says Peter was the one who said, Jesus, you're asking who touched you? Everyone touched you. The Greek is we're being crushed. We're being crushed by this crowd and you're asking who touched you? And Jesus said, no, no, somebody touched me. Something has happened. I felt power go out from me. And you have to think Jairus in this moment is like, Jesus, come on, it's right here. Did I not make it clear? My daughter is in desperate condition. She's dying. I need you to keep coming. But Jesus, he lived with an intensity of purpose, but a calmness of spirit. In that moment, he just paused. He paused the crowd. He paused the moment. He paused the situation. And we see that Jesus embraces this woman. See, she thought she needed to touch him and Jairus thought Jesus needed to touch his daughter. Neither were true. Both of them were a little flawed, but we learned something important, and that's this. Jesus loves to use flawed faith for his glory. If you're in the room right now, and you're like, man, I wanna be here, I wanna pursue Jesus, but my faith, it's just a little flawed, it's just a little fractured. Just know, Jesus loves to use flawed faith for his glory. Because even though our faith is rarely perfect, God's grace always is. Even though our faith is rarely perfect, God's grace always is. And why does he love to use? Because Jesus, he isn't looking for perfect faith. He's looking for honest faith. I know some of you in the room. I know a lot of you in the room. I know many of your stories. 
And I've heard you say things like, when I just learn a little bit more, I'll start serving more at the church. When, when I get a little stronger in my faith, I wanna get baptized. I'm just not ready. I'm just, I'm just not sure. I just don't know enough yet. I'm just not living quite right enough yet. And what you're saying is, I have faith, but it's a little flawed. I have faith, but it's a little fractured. It will never not be flawed this side of eternity. It will always have a little fracture in it. Jesus does not require you to have perfect faith. Jesus wants you to have honest faith. He wants you to go forward and align yourself with him publicly. And in spite of your fractures and flaws, he's happy to align himself with you. So we keep looking at this passage and we see that God has a habit of using our flawed and fractured faith in a very powerful way publicly. And, and I wanna argue that he uses this woman's faith publicly in a way he's gonna use our faith publicly. Look, I don't think he called her out to embarrass her. I think it was quite the opposite. The first thing I think Jesus does with our public faith is this, he does something for ourself. Jesus does something for ourself. This woman had been declared publicly unclean. And do you know who potentially was a part of that declaration? of having to tell her she was unclean and she couldn't go to the temple? Jairus, that's what he does. He's at the temple. He helps lead the temple, right? So he knew she was unclean. She knew she was unclean. The crowd knew she was unclean. Jesus knew she was unclean. But Jesus called her out publicly, why? Because he wants to declare her clean and right with her community. He basically steps between her and the community. And he says, if you have a problem with her, you can take it up with me because I declare her clean, because he physically knew she had been healed. But he takes it a step further. And he says, not only are you clean, he gives her a title. He says, daughter. Now you may think that's real common, but this is the only time in the entire Bible, Jesus calls someone daughter. And the reason he calls her daughter is not because she's been healed of her disease. The reason he calls her daughter is because she's been healed of her sin. Look, he wasn't just restoring her life, he gave her new life. He was telling her, you're mine, I'm yours. We belong to each other forever. So he uses our faith publicly for ourself as a reminder that I've been declared, I've been aligned publicly with Jesus. The second thing is this, he uses it for our community, for the people who are watching. Look, our changed life gives hope to those around us. Our changed life gives hope to those around us. We actually become the proof of the power of Jesus that other people see. Our lives become the proof of the power of Jesus that other people see. In this moment, this woman becomes the proof for Jairus to see because Jairus is getting ready to have a very difficult moment in his life. But if Jesus can heal her, then Jesus can do what Jairus is asking. This is the reason that we get publicly baptized in our church, because it's a reminder that God is still alive. He's still working. He's still saving. And there's hope for your son, for your daughter, for your husband, for your wife, for your brother, your sister, for your mom, your dad, your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, that person on your kid's team. Our God's alive and he's working and he's moving. Did you see Max get baptized? Man, that's a full grown man. And he just publicly said, I belong to God in Jesus. My faith's not perfect. It's fractured, it's flawed, but it's honest. And if he wants me, I want him. 
And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what happens when we get baptized. And really what happens is God uses our faith publicly for ourselves, for our community, and ultimately for his glory. Because when we proclaim him and when we are changed by him, then the world sees that Jesus is unlike any other. Both of these encounters show us that at some point, though, our faith moves from being a very private thing in our life to becoming a reality that is publicly seen. And for that, that moment, we're gonna see it in the next two verses. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a, someone from the ruler's house, from Jairus's house, who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. This moment is the critical moment for Jairus. And it's also a moment you're gonna experience in your life if you follow Jesus. We are all gonna have a moment when the facts say one thing and our faith says something different. We are all gonna have a moment when the facts say one thing and our faith says something different. There's a moment when the facts are gonna say you're too relationally broken to be healed with those around you. But God's gonna say, if you are right with me, I can make you right with them. There's gonna be a moment when the facts say you've wasted too much time, too much opportunities, too much of your resources. It's over, you've missed it, it's done. It can never be restored. But God says, I can restore the years that have been lost. There's gonna be a moment when the facts say you're too far from God. Like his grace is done. You keep saying you're sorry for that thing that happens every day in your life. It's over, it's empty. There's no more grace in the cup. But Jesus says, come to me, you look tired. I wanna give you some rest. Just confess your sin and I'll forgive your sin. Look, these are the moments that show what it looks like when we invite Jesus into our pain. Um, in this moment, Jairus has a decision to make. He's got one person on this side who says, your daughter's dead. And he's got one person on this side who's just being called daughter and given life. And he's stuck right in the middle with Jesus. So let's look at what he does. He says, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of Jairus and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when Jesus entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And the child is not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Notice how quick they turn, just like that. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talithia Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. He told them to give her something to eat. So we've met three characters, a desperate dad, a dying daughter, and a woman who's done. But right now, we've just met the most important character. And that is a king who is in control. A king who is in control. Because when this dad was desperate, Jesus was calm. When the doctors couldn't fix the woman, Jesus could heal her. When the disciples were overwhelmed by the crowd, Jesus was in control. And when this little girl was dead, death was forced to respond to the voice of Jesus. When this little girl was dead, death itself was forced to respond to the voice of Jesus. And this passage serves as a reminder 
that when we say Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, what we're really saying is there is nothing in my life I am facing. There is nothing in my life that I am uh, standing in front of that you aren't in control of, God. Because Jesus, you are greater than we could ever imagine. You're stronger than we could ever dream. And Jesus, you're more engaged than we could ever deserve. So I think as we kind of wrap down and we look at this issue of pain, we have to start asking ourselves some questions and internalizing this. What are you facing right now in your life? What pain or obstacle is in front of you? Can you label it? Can you identify it? Can you put a word next to it? And can you be honest about it? This is making me feel scared. This is making me feel alone. This is making me feel overwhelmed. This is making me feel desperate. This is making me feel done. What are you facing right now? And here's the second question. And what are you turning to right now? Now you're here in the room, which tells me at some level, you're trying to turn to Jesus in your life. But what are you turning to right now? Look, Jesus doesn't want us to wait for our faith to grow before we start to follow him because Jesus wants us to invite him into our pain even when we're fractured and flawed. Right now, Jesus is saying, turn to me. Invite me into your pain. I know your faith's fractured. I know it's flawed, but turn to me. So I was uh, flying home from Belize and we left Atlanta in the middle of a rainstorm. And I don't like to fly much anyways, but I definitely don't like to fly in a rainstorm. And I was thinking about the end of this sermon. And I thought, God, why do I turn to you last? Like I go through all my other options when I'm in pain or when I'm afraid or when I'm dealing with so why do I come to you last? And I started thinking, I think it's just because um, when I start to lose hope in my life, this statement becomes real. Pain has a way of feeling permanent. Pain has a way of feeling permanent. Like when you're in pain, you think it's never gonna end. When you're in pain, it feels like this is a permanent condition I will live with for the rest of my life. But the truth is that's not true because pain, pain is a liar. See, see pain conditions us to think that we have to do something out of panic, but God never feels that panic. God doesn't want us to buy into the lie. So as we took off out of Atlanta and we're coming up through the clouds and through this storm, suddenly we pop up. You know what's on the other side of those clouds? The sun. And I thought, you know what? This is exactly what pain feels like for me. When a storm rolls in in my life, it's almost like I believe the sun has totally disappeared. Like it's gone. Like it's never gonna come back. I just lose all logic, but that's not true. The sun's still there, burning as bright as ever. The clouds are just obstructing it. You, you may be in pain right now and you just feel like God is gone. It's over, I'm alone. This is never gonna end. Pain is a liar. He's still there and it will end and it will be over. And he can actually do something better than you ever imagined if you invite him in to your pain. How can I say that with such confidence? Because of something called the gospel. The gospel proves that God can use our worst pain for good. The gospel proves that God can use our worst pain for good. Let me see if I can explain why. Because God took the death of his son and he brought about 
life to his people. God took his one and only perfect son who wasn't messy in any way, who didn't deserve the messiness of this world, who never had to say my bad, but instead he took all of my bad and put it on himself. He took all of my pain, all of my sin, all of my problems, and he says, I'll take those. And then he handed me all of his rightness and goodness and righteousness. And he didn't have to do that, but he wanted to do that. So the gospel tells me that God can take the death of his son and he can bring life to people. Why? Because he's good. Because he created this world for us to have relationship with him. And then we did something to break it called sin. And sin brought all these consequences, but God was not okay with us not being okay. So Jesus came, he lived the life that you failed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die, separated from God so that we would never have to be. And he was resurrected to prove he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. And when he says, daughter, you're his. And when he says, son, you're his. And when he says, death is done, it's over forever. Why? Because he defeated death himself. So Jesus really is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. We simply have to respond. We have to turn to him and invite him in to our life and into our pain. Because these worldly earthly healings that we just saw, they point us to something far greater. They point us to the real miracle that's coming in the future. The miracle that God doesn't just bring healing to our earthly life, but he brings eternal life to people like you and I. So if you're in the room right now, because pain has started driving you to search. And that searching is kind of bringing you face to face with Jesus. Can I just tell you, he's not trying to ease your pain. He's trying to give you hope for your life. And as we kind of close, I just wanna close with a statement. Tim said this statement a few years ago, and I wrote it down. And in some of the hardest moments I've faced over the past year, these three little words, these three little statements have anchored me and I think if it means this much to me, it's gotta mean something to some of you. Before I tell you what those three things are, I wanna tell you if right now you're ready to say, I just need somebody to help me with this. I'm ready to talk to somebody, I'm ready to deal with that. I'm ready to invite Jesus into my brokenness, my life, my pain. We wanna to talk to you. After the service, you can come right over. There'll be a door that opens up over there. You can go out in the lobby, talk to one of our staff. We'd love to help you move from where you are to where God's calling you to be. And as a close, I just wanna leave you with three statements. No matter where you are, I want you to know that God sees you. He sees you right now. Even if nobody else sees it, he sees you and he sees what's in your life. Number two, he knows you. He knows what hurts. He knows how bad it is. He knows your fear. And number three, and he loves you. That that's not the end of your story. He, he can turn the page and have something so much better written for you than you could ever imagine if you'll invite him in and trust him. So this morning, as we prepare to sing our last song, let's pause and let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for these two stories of healing and hope, of taking what was impossible for men to fix, proving that you're not like anyone else. 
Thank you for the reminder that you took the worst pain in life, the death of your son, and you brought about life to people. And if you can do that, then God, we trust you that you can do it with us. So God, we pray right now that you would do what only you can do in a way that only you can do it so that you and you alone, God, get the glory. We ask it in your name, Jesus.